You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 if you haven't already. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if everybody's known this, but maybe some groups have done this. But if you want to dig in even deeper into Ephesians, there are Every week we have questions posted on our website that go with the sermon, and they are great for conversation, obviously, in a group setting or with one other person, but they might even be just uh, really helpful to dig in deeper into the text. Um, I know I have just appreciated studying it deeper and looking at it more, so just encourage you to check those out if that's of interest. Um, In John chapter 3, there is a story about a religious leader named Nicodemus. Maybe you've heard this story before. And Nicodemus was, it says in John 3, that Nicodemus was a, a leader, a religious leader. So he would have been one of the guys who would have studied the scriptures on a regular basis, possibly if he was you know, really devout and good. He would have had large portions of the Torah memorized. It's, it's uh, well known that rabbis would have, some of them would have had the whole Torah, first five books of the Bible memorized. He would have been the guy who, if anybody would kind of be ready for the Messiah to come, he would be one of the guys. Like, antennas would be up that the Messiah is here. And yet when he saw Jesus, he was confused by what Jesus was doing. He was not sure about him at all. And it says in John 3 that one night in in the evening time, he went to go find Jesus. And he wanted to ask him some questions. And what he says in the text there, he says that you must be from God. Because the things that you're doing are not human things. So I don't know who you are, Jesus, but there's some sort of category that you're in that is different. And so I want to find out who you are and what what you're all about. And so Jesus then goes on to explain to him one very important truth. He says this. He says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, okay, that's the kind of stuff that when you say that, I don't know what to do with that. You know, he's very confused. He's like, I'm a grown man. Am I supposed to climb back in and get born again? You know, what do you mean, Jesus, by this? And so Jesus says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, and if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. And Jesus is introducing to Nicodemus what we now know in a fuller way, that to see and experience the life of God, the life of the kingdom, all the different terms that the New Testament uses, to experience that new life and to actually have it change our lives means we need to be born again. We need to have the mind and the heart of 
someone who's been touched by the Spirit of God. And the New Testament says we actually get to become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God comes into our lives, changes us from the inside out, and we see and experience life in a whole new way. And this is what Paul has been teaching in this book of Ephesians, that you are now spirit-filled beings. You are people created by God who now have the spirit of God within you. And so like Nicodemus, we can now enter in and experience this kind of new life. We're new creations, Paul says. We don't just follow the patterns of the world anymore. There's a, a new way of understanding There's a new way of living. There's a new way of being a community together. So over the last couple weeks, we talked about what this unity actually looks like. In in very practical ways, Paul is now spelling out for us, this is what a new community and this is what a new creation looks like. These are the actual actions of your life. And so this morning in our text, it's another text like that. Very practical, very, like, not hard to kind of see the difference. So we're going to actually look at the, the contrasting lifestyles that Paul is going to show to us. And then we're going to step away from the text a little bit and think about how do we actually live this out. Okay, how do we actually live it out? So I'm hoping it's going to be very practical in nature. So in verse 17, if you have your Bible again... In verse 17 of Ephesians, Paul begins this section by saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul says the way that the Gentiles are living is not your road to walk on anymore. And who is he speaking to? If you remember from the first week of this series, Paul is speaking primarily to Gentile people. These are non-Jews living in Ephesus. Ephesus is a pretty large city for the time, probably 100, 200,000 people, which was a large city. It is a, you know, it's full of all kinds of commerce and activity. It's, at that time, it's still a port city, so there's a lot of, of trade that's going on. There are temples there to all kinds of Roman and, you know, Greek goddess, gods and goddesses. There is the goddess Artemis, which has a massive temple. There's still ruins from it there today. And it's into this context that Paul is saying, that's the Gentile lifestyle that you're living among. You're in there now as Christians. Some of you still of Roman heritage, Some of you from other places maybe moved there. That is your context of life. And Paul says that way of life, of understanding the world, is is not your calling anymore. Paul says you're a new creation now. You're living life in a new way. And Paul is speaking to people who, just like us, are looking around at the people around them. They're looking at their neighbors. They're looking at the people they do business with. And here's what they're thinking. Like many of us think, I I think, I think this often, my neighbors seem like happy. My neighbors seem like they have really good lives. Some of my neighbors who don't know Jesus are like 
the kindest people. They're the ones who snow blow my driveway. I'm really thankful for that. Paul, are you saying that there's a whole category of people that they're just not that? Is that what that is? No, Paul's saying there is a, there's a way of the Spirit that is different from the way of the Gentile. The way of, uh, Paul would use in other categories, the way of the pagan. That's what Paul uses in Romans and other places. People who have not put their trust in Jesus are living in a different way and with different motives. So look at what Paul says in verse 18. Here's his description where he kind of, he pushes it a little bit to the extremes. This is kind of the worst case scenario in a, in a lot of cases of what the, the Gentile life as he's categorizing it looks like. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul says, this is kind of his shortened description of it. If you were to look at the book of Romans, you see he takes like three chapters to describe that. But Paul says, this is a description of their lives. There's alienation from God. There's separation from the life of God. There's a, a callousness and a hardness. But listen, here's what Paul is not doing. Paul is not saying, we're in this category over here and everybody else out there is of this kind of mindset. That's just people over there. No, here's what Paul is saying. He is talking to Christians. He is talking to believers. And he's saying, here's what you're being tempted to do or here's what you're doing. This very description of the Gentile mindset is becoming your mindset. This very description of this kind of life, of one that is calloused, one that is, it's looking like it's even alienated from God. It's looking like it's disconnected from the life of God. You are being tempted to that kind of lifestyle. And Paul says, that's not you anymore. This is what the new life, this is what the new creation has done. It has not made you that kind of person anymore. You are living a new kind of life. And so then in verses 25 to the end of our section there, he kind of puts it on display in all practicality. He says, this is what the lives kind of look like in contrast. And I, I put a little chart up. We, we won't read all the verses again. But this is what he's saying. He lists what the Gentile view of life looks like or a view disconnected from the life of God. And then he says, but this is what a life connected to the Spirit looks like. So, Rather than, you know, don't be dishonest, we're called to speak the truth to one another. Rather than, you know, having unresolved anger, we're supposed to have a proper use of anger. Rather than stealing, we're supposed to work. Again, he comes back to this honesty and, and using our words rather than in a deceptive way, we're called to use them to build people up, to be encouraging. Rather than grieving the Spirit, we're called to live by the Spirit. And rather than hanging on to bitterness and wrath and anger and all these things that would hurt people, we're called to a life of kindness and love towards one another. So it's not, this isn't rocket science, you know what I mean? Like this, 
This doesn't actually take a lot of explanation because if you were to look at this and say, who do you want to be your friend? Like if this is two people and you could pick who do you want to you know, spend time with or be with, I'm telling you, none of us are picking the person on the left. So this is not, you know, this doesn't even take a Christian mindset to see this. This is something that people long for. But here's what Paul is saying. You are being enticed into and you're even being given over to the person on the left. The Gentile mindset. And Paul says, that is not you. You are called to live as new creations, as a new person. So, Paul has a pivot. Paul has like a hinge point. There's a few verses right in the middle here that are what I think are the most important in this whole section. Where Paul says, you need some sort of supernatural power to actually live this out. Because otherwise, all of us would just be that all the time. The person on the right. All the time, just like the best kind of, just living that out. But it's not just that easy, is it? Maybe, I don't think I'm the only one. It's not just that easy to just live out these things. Even, you know, for those of us who have families, who have husbands or wives, or we have children, the people that we love the most on this planet, it's hard to live these things out with them. Maybe even it's the hardest. And so Paul says there is a hinge point. There is, there is a pivot. There is something that actually needs to happen in our lives to see this, to experience this new life, to put into practice what it means to be a new creation, to live it out. The other week I had a cold, and I know I um, have been belly aching to a few of you about it already. So you've heard this sob story, okay? I was sick, and I was going to bed with headaches, and you know all that goes with a cold, and um, kind of struggling along. And finally, you know, Liz was like, "Okay, you're gonna have to take." Robitussin, you know, you got to take that stuff. Otherwise, it's like, you know, coughing late at night. And I don't know who's been taking that stuff, but it's horrible, right? Nobody wants to drink that stuff. But it was like, I just needed to do it. And it actually made a difference. I'm sorry to say it, because then I had to keep drinking it, like, multiple nights in a row. And it was a moment which was taking me from one type of sickness to a different kind of sleep and in most cases. This is what Paul is saying. There's a hinge point here. There is a pivot that needs to be made and it's in verses 20 through 24. So if you have your Bible, please look at it or read it on your phone or we have it on the screen here. But these verses are so important. Verse 20 says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. See that line? Paul says, that's not you. You're, you're a new creation now. You did not learn Christ that way. Then in verse 21, he says, Assuming that you have heard about him and that you are taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23 says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul says, 
you are to put on this new life. This new life, this, this new creation is to be your life. That's to be the source of the choices you make, of the actions that you are doing throughout your week, the motivation behind the various things you're doing. It's this new life. And specifically, verse 23 there, you're to be a renewed people. So to be renewed is to, you know, to put on this newness of life. Paul uses language here like, like clothing, to, to put on and put off. It's literally, it's language that you would use for an old a coat or something or a tunic. So Paul says, this new life is yours. It's a, it's a true reality. It's a complete work. There's no like doing a little bit more to get more of it. All of chapters 1 through 3 are accomplished for you, finished as a Christian. But now Paul says, in your life, in the choices you make, put on this new life. Put this on. It will not just, you know, you're not a robot now. You're not just totally under, you know, uncontrollable urges by the Spirit to do it. Paul says, there is an action that needs to happen. You need to put on this new life. So that you are a changed man or a changed woman. Renewed in the spirit. So another image that is used by Jesus in the gospels is the image of a vine. And in John chapter 15, he says that he is the vine and we are the branches. If you're familiar with this text, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And we bear fruit when we are connected to the vine. And another way of saying it is when we are abiding in the vine. So Jesus is using this imagery to say there is a connection now to Jesus, and it's through his power. That's what this putting on is. It's through his power that we actually bear fruit or, or live our lives. So the, the choices we make, all this you know, the chart that we were looking at, all the spirit-filled choices that, that Paul says, that's your new life. That is the life of Christ working through us. But like this imagery of the vine, we actually need a support system. We need something to kind of hold us in place, like a, like a trellis is there for a vine, so that we can bear fruit because we're connected to the vine itself. So a support system is needed. Now, many of us uh, think and we have grown up in a world where all we need actually is just more freedom. We are living in an age where freedom is everything. So, you know, I want to follow Jesus. Just I, I need a unhindered relationship with God. I don't need anything, nobody telling me what to do, no, no guidance even. Some people, you know, don't even want the word of God kind of taught to them. I just need freedom to follow God in the way that he would have me go, and that is going to lead me to the life that God has for me. And in scripture, we actually see that it's the opposite, that God actually calls us to a structure and to a, a gift of what we'll call a trellis here this morning. Justin Early, in his book, The Common Rule, says this, What if the good life doesn't come from having the ability to do what we want, but having the ability to do what we were made for? 
What if true freedom comes from choosing the right limitations, not avoiding all limitations? So Paul here is calling us to be renewed, to choose renewal so that the Spirit of God can actually live through us. And in our lives, we experience this often as well, where it takes choices, specific choices, to see outcomes come about. So if you're married, you remember you made the, you know, the, the biggest choice in your marriage was you decided to get married. That was a first decision. She said yes, or, you know, there was some sort of first step in this process, and then you made a commitment together on your marriage day. But what you discovered very quickly, probably on the, within the first week, is that marriage is just this constant choosing again and again and again. It's a commitment that is the first one really significant. Yes, we would all say yes, that's really important. But to keep this thing going, it's just... Maybe it's an exaggeration. Millions of decisions, you know? It's like hundreds of thousands of decisions, depending however long you're going to be able to be married together. To maintain this covenant relationship is constant choices and decisions that you're making. Robert Mulholland, in his book on spiritual disciplines, um, says this, It is not surprising that we as members of an instant gratification culture, tend to become impatient with any process of development that requires of us more than a limited involvement of our time and energies. If we do not receive the desired results, almost instantly we become impatient and frustrated. So this idea of making hundreds of thousands of decisions to maintain relationship sounds not very appealing to many people, if we're honest. To do the hard work of any sort of work is not appealing to many, many people. So when we are called to take steps toward renewal, and even when Jesus calls us to a deep discipleship with him, for many, many people, it's not appealing But when we experience the closeness of Christ, we actually begin to experience what Paul is just saying. There is this renewal, this like new creation life. We begin to experience it. And so I want to use this phrase this morning to talk about this idea of uh, how do we actually enter into experiencing that renewal. And it comes through practices. Some people maybe call them spiritual disciplines. Some people call them habits of faith. Some people call them practices. There's all kinds of different phrases. One of the ways that uh, Justin Earley, he uses this phrase, which a lot of people have been using nowadays, is the phrase uh, rule of life. Has anybody heard of this idea, rule of life? Few people have. Maybe read some books on it. Um, A rule of life is this. It's actually a, a phrase that was used in the second century by Augustine and the early church fathers. It was basically a way to describe how a community was going to live together and be committed together to follow God so that they could experience this renewal on an individual basis and in their corporate gathering together. The rule of life is this. It comes from the Latin word regula, 
So that's where rule is coming from, which means a bar or a trellis. Okay, so it's, it's taking this idea, again, of the vine. And I think I have a picture here of the vine where in, and maybe if you've been to a vineyard before, you've seen this, where the vines are tied up to these trellises, this support system, so that they can focus on producing a ton of fruit, all kinds of grapes, and the trellis is there to support the actual growth that is happening. And that's where this idea from the early church fathers came from, where there was this system that was put in place, these habits, these disciplines for spiritual life so that the Spirit of God could actually produce fruit in our lives. Renewal. So the focus was not on the trellis, on, you know, all the system, the different names of it. The focus was on how can we actually experience this renewal, this Spirit-filled life. So again, Justin Earley says this, The rule of life is intended to pattern communal life in a direction of purpose and love instead of chaos and decay. So he's saying the reason why they would put these practices into place was so that they could actually experience the love of Christ in a deeper, more significant way. So I want to just talk about really briefly here five habits of faith. Okay, now these aren't the five habits. But if you think about them, probably many of them are part of your life already, and maybe some of them aren't. But today, I want to just kind of introduce this idea of these five things as five habits or disciplines or practices to make a part of your life so that you can experience the Spirit of God in a fuller, newer way, maybe in a way that you've never experienced Him before. Because maybe... And I, I know this is the case with many of us. Maybe you're wondering, why am I not experiencing the presence of God in my life? Why am I not experiencing freedom from this sin in my life? Why am I always responding like that in my life? Have you ever asked that question before? Where is the presence of God in my life that we talk about? You know, we talk over the last number of weeks about the power of the resurrection And maybe you're like, I've never experienced that in my life. Part of these practices bring us back to that spirit-filled life, that new creation life. So, rule of life, five practices. Here's the first one. The first one is this, Sabbath. And maybe you're thinking, Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath is like something that my grandparents used to do, you know, it's like something they talked about. Um, What is this idea of Sabbath? Sabbath is taking time to actually rest from the work that you're involved in. Sabbath is a practice of stepping back from creating in your work, whatever your workspace is. Sabbath is actually a really old idea. If you know the scriptures, you know that in Genesis, God creates And he makes all that there is to be made, and then he rests. There is Sabbath. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or, or separate, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rested. Not because he needed to. God wasn't tired from what he was doing. But God rested 
to, one, set an example for us, but also, two, to give us the gift of Sabbath, to disconnect from the work that we're doing. And so Sabbath, then, has many different purposes, many different reasons why it's valuable, but one of the main reasons why it's valuable is it allows us to step back and say, God, you are ultimately in control. You are in control of my work. You're in control of the things that just consume my mind all week. I'm going to step back from all that work, and I'm going to put my full trust in you. Sabbath rest. And depending on your work, uh, the way that you rest might look different. So in the Old Testament, very prescribed how Sabbath was supposed to be done. But that kind of prescription is not brought over into the New Testament. But this idea of Sabbath is still there. And so the way that we Sabbath might be very different. So Abraham Heschel says this, A man or a woman who works with his mind should Sabbath with his hands. And a man who works with his hands should Sabbath with his mind. So there might be different ways of practicing Sabbath, of taking a break, taking hands off of what you normally are hands on with. Because I know there's many people in, in the room here who own their own businesses or they just are involved in work. And now even whether you know, it's work on our phones, or we can take work everywhere nowadays. It can go with us everywhere and so Sabbath will be so easy to just ignore completely, just productivity, 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 just keep going. But practicing Sabbath is actually a gift from God. To be able to unplug and say, on this day, on this Sabbath day, whether it's Sunday for many of you, Sunday is the day, I'm actually going to pause for my work and put into my mind and heart the realization, the truth that God is in control. So that's why we still gather on Sunday mornings. Tradition from the early church, they chose this first day as the day that they would concentrate their mind and their effort on being renewed by who God is, rather than the work that they are involved in. So we are called to practice Sabbath so that we can enter into this rest that Hebrews says. Hebrews is talking about it in a spiritual sense, but it is, it is, these thoughts are interconnected where he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us strive to enter the rest. Those two words almost seem like they contradict each other. Like, let's strive to enter the rest. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't do any work for your salvation. And this Sabbath rest is actually a gift for God's people. Okay. A little bit long on that one. Sabbath rest. Everybody's got that one? Okay. Number two. This one is also a gift from God. It is prayer. Prayer is our ongoing conversation with God. So think about it. When we've, we've, over this last year, we've done a number of sermons on prayer and a, and a series on the Lord's Prayer. This gift that we have from God to connect with him through prayer. We can talk to him about anything. We can ask him for any and everything. We can do it at any point in our day. We can do it wherever we are. What an amazing gift to connect with the creator of the universe, to connect with God our Father in relationship with him and communicate in prayer. Again, 
it acknowledges, when we pray, it helps us acknowledge that, God, you're in control. This experience in my life that I don't know what to do, I'm, I may be afraid of, I'm confused by, I'm, I'm loving, I'm hating, whatever it is, God, I can bring all these things to you in prayer. And to put this into practice as God's people is a gift that we have to connect with our Father. And the amazing thing is that God actually answers our prayers. We pray for something and God answers our prayers. We either receive the thing or God even convinces us of the truth that we didn't even need the thing that we were asking for. God answers prayers. And sometimes it takes long, but sometimes it goes quickly. So we've been praying, you know, this is, we're into our fourth year now here of being in this building. You know, it's, we almost don't talk about it enough, but we've just been regularly praying, God, keep providing for us, keep providing for us. And we just get another six months, another six months, and he just keeps providing. He's answering prayers. That's what he's doing. And in each of our lives, there's other prayers that God is answering that we could give testimony to. The gift of practicing regular prayer in our lives to see God work, to bring renewal. Number three, Scripture. Scripture brings life and light into our lives. So the Scriptures are this amazing gift to us. God has revealed himself to us in a book. He has given the scriptures to us, either on your phone or in printed form, for us to look at and to discover more and more and more. Remember playing that uh, game, um, I Spy, I think it was called, it used to be books, I Spy books, where you could, you were supposed to find like, I don't know, 20 things, 50 things, uh, you're supposed to find all these things on this jumble. That's what the scriptures are like where you continually go back and find more and more truth as you study more, as you read more. And I don't know if you've talked to old saints before, you know, believers who are 70, 80 years old, who are still going back to the Word of God and discovering more and more truth about what God is teaching them, what God is showing them. Hebrews 4, verse 12 again says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The author of Hebrews says, There are things in your heart that you have so buried down there. Ideas you have about God, things that you have done in the past that maybe you've just shoved them so far down, maybe even you've forgotten about them. Or maybe they're things that you didn't even realize you did. They're just down there. You don't even know that you need to address these things. And the Word of God is the ability, when you read it and study it, to pierce right in there to go right into that place and to bring healing right into the spaces where you wouldn't even know that it's needed, but it's the power of the Word of God which comes down into that space. So bringing the Scriptures into our lives, a regular practice of reading the Scriptures, 
is a gift from God and a practice that we all need to grow in. The fourth one is community. Community is a gift of a people unified in their love and pursuit of Jesus. So for us, for most of us, it's this congregation that we come to regularly. And for many of us, also involved in missional family, where we are committing to other people. And in the world that we live in, that is, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the world is radical individualism. We are saying no to that. We're saying that is actually the way that the world is going, which has led to just massive amounts of loneliness, anxiety, and separation. And now here we are as God's people called to be united, it's experiencing the, the love, the care that we have, the support system that the church brings. All of these things are wonderful benefits of being committed to a community of faith, a, a benefit that even the, the governments and secular societies, they know that churches are actually a value to local communities because people are connected and they're cared for. So rather than this product of tribalism and separation, we choose community together. We choose the practice of being bound to one another. Last one, number five, generosity. Gener generosity reminds us that we have been given much. And to those who have been given much, God actually, the expectation is that we will respond with generosity. This is what the scriptures say. The expectation is not forced on us. God doesn't make us do this. God says, the expectation, when you understand all that you've received in Christ, all the grace that you have, the expectation is that you're just going to be a generous person. You're going to give of your time. You're going to give of your finances. You're going to give of your care, of your experiences, all the things that God has given to you. You're going to generously give it to others. 1 Corinthians 9 puts it this way. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God says, give cheerfully. Whatever the Spirit lays on your heart, that is how you are called to give. Not reluctantly, but with joy, being cheerful, as he says there, in how you give and how you practice your generosity. So when you, if you're some of the ones that serve in Sunday school or when you give to church or when you buy diapers for the pregnancy center, like whatever you do, you do it cheerfully, practicing generosity. So this rule of life of Sabbath, prayer, scripture, community, and generosity, this is a way of life that God's people are called to. And like I said, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a list of practices or habits that can be part of your life to experience the renewal. Ruth Haley Barton puts it this way, this is simply a regular pattern of attitudes, behaviors, and practices that as we submit to them over time, create space, an opportunity for Christ to be more fully formed in us. That's the goal. The goal is to be more fully formed, to experience that renewal that Paul is talking about. 
This is the, this is the actual act of putting on this new life, practicing the reality of who we are in Christ. Now before we go to communion here, there are three ways to kind of look at something like this. The first way is a fearful way. So you see this thing and you even hear the word rule of life and your experience is like, okay, okay, there's these five things now. I got to do them. You know, this is the new rule of life. God is up there. He's kind of like a big, mean. he's got a stick. And if I skip on one of these, he's going to come down hard on me. So if you grew up in a religious environment or an environment where, a, you know, you grew up in a church context where it was like, you better do these things right, otherwise God is coming for you. Then if you hear rule of life and these practices, I can say grace, grace, grace ten times and you probably won't be hearing it. Because all you're hearing is, I got to toe the line because I'm afraid that the big guy is going to get me if I don't do this right. So you are just thinking fear, fear, fear. The second way to interpret this is one of pride. One of like, I can do this. This is five things, man. I can put this into my week. I'll put it in my to-do list. I'm going to do all these things. And then I come to church on Sunday and I'll be like, hey, did you Sabbath? Because I Sabbathed. Did you? Like, did you really Sabbath? I did 12 hours. How many hours did you Sabbath, you know? Were you generous? I'm generous. We're just like, we got this. An air of pride comes over us, which is, that's the, that's the roots of religiosity right there. Fear and pride. What we have been given, and what we've been thinking about for weeks now in Ephesians, is an air of grace. The only reason why we do these things is by grace alone. The only reason why we, we can experience this renewal is by grace alone. And when we do these things, when we do these very actions, they do not contradict grace. They are the result of grace in our lives. They are a product of grace experienced in our lives. And what we want is more experience of God's grace. We want more experience of renewal. We want to experience the presence of God in our lives. We want freedom from sin in our lives. We want freedom from the slavery, the bondage of a life that is not for us. We want to be like Nicodemus. We want to experience the kingdom of God. But in many cases, we're also like Nicodemus. We're just confused, man. Who are you, Jesus? We are confused by his calling on our lives. And so these practices are the living out of this pursuit of renewal. Or as Philippians 2 says, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works these things out in him. We experience this renewed life by his grace alone.